Good afternoon and welcome to Addressing Mental Health Disparities in Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx Communities in Northeast Georgia, a webinar event presented by Foothills Area Health Education Center, a nonprofit organization with a mission to recruit, train, and retain healthcare professionals in our 31 counties in Northeast Georgia. We're glad that you can join us today. I'm Lana Brand, Foothills AHEX Preceptor Coordinator, and I'll be your moderator today. Before we get started, we have a few housekeeping items to address. This webinar is organized into three parts. Part one will be the presentation. Part two will be an online question and answer session after the presentation. And part three will include an online evaluation survey and closing remarks. If you experience any buffering or connection speed issues during the webinar, please try closing any other internet browser windows or email services such as Outlook or Gmail, as this may slow down your connection. If that does not solve the issue or other issues you may be experiencing, try refreshing your meeting window by closing it and re-entering the meeting room the same way that you entered the first time. If you hear an echo, you probably have more than one meeting window open. Uh, try closing all the windows and re-entering the meeting. If you continue to have technical issues, please post in the chat and we'll do our best to help you out. The following presentation contains no commercial support. The, speaker and the speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. This educational event was supported by the Aetna Foundation with grant funds dedicated to improving health literacy and helping low-income, vulnerable, and medically underserved people live healthier lives. We would like to thank the Northeast Georgia Health System, CME Department, and the University of Georgia School of Social Work for providing continuing medical education and continuing education units for participating in this webinar. To receive your CME slash CEU credits, please complete the survey evaluation after today's activity. If you are watching the recorded version of this webinar, the evaluation link will be listed in the description section of the video. If you have any questions throughout the webinar, please enter it in the chat and they will be answered during the Q&A session following the panelists' presentations. Evidence shows that Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx communities show similar vulnerability to mental illness as the general population, but they face disparities in both access to and quality of treatment. 35% of Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx adults with mental illness receive treatment each year compared to the U.S. average of 46%. With this in mind and knowing that just over 15% of residents in the 31 Northeast Georgia counties that Foothills AHEC serves reported their ethnicity as Hispanic or Latino, Latina, Latinx in the 2020 U.S. Census as compared to only 10% statewide in Georgia, Foothills AHEC identified this as an essential education topic for the healthcare workforce. Upon completion of this activity, participants should be able to describe the barriers to mental health care among Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx communities and their prevalence, utilize screening tools, assessments, and strategies to overcome language barriers in diagnosing mental health conditions, and demonstrate cultural competence when interacting with Hispanic and Latino, Latina, Latinx patients. 
finally, I would like to introduce our physician planner for this webinar, Dr. Antonio Rios. Dr. Rios initially received his medical degree from La Salle University in Mexico City and went on to complete his residency training in internal medicine at Emory University in Atlanta. He has been an integral part of Northeast Georgia Health System and Northeast Georgia Physicians Group since 1999, which just so happens to also be the year that Foothills AHEC was established. He currently serves as NGHS's Chief of Population Health, President of HP2, and Internal Medicine Residency Program Ambulatory Core Faculty. In addition to his service to NGHS as an executive and a primary care physician, he volunteers at the Good News Clinics to provide health care for uninsured patients of Hall County, serves on the Georgia Board of Healthcare Workforce to identify the needs of Georgia communities, and meet those needs through the support and development of medical education programs, and also assist Foothills AHEC in our mission to sustain the healthcare workforce in Northeast Georgia to ultimately improve the health of our community. It is my pleasure to present Dr. Antonio Rios, who will now introduce our three panelists. Thank you very much, Lana. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you. I think this is a topic that is of the utmost importance and relevance, and I think we're extremely fortunate to have such an accomplished group of speakers for this for this program. I'll start with uh, Dr. Marshall Bruner, who uh, is now the director of the Brunel Center for Counseling and Psychological Services, but he has a significant experience in the community, uh, having been the director of Centerpoint here in Gainesville. And um, he also, he started his career at Berry College, uh, obtaining a psychology degree, and then uh, at Emory, University with a theology degree, which is very impressive, and then obtained his PhD at Argosy University. And uh, not only does he, uh, he's providing the counseling and directing those services, but also has a knowledge of our landscape, which is extremely important. Not only it's important to provide these services, but to understand the cultural context where these services are going to be delivered to be able to be more effective. I'll, I'll jump to Betsy Escamilla, who is also has an MS in, in psychology and has significant experience in our school system and community uh, as a lead counselor for the Gainesville City School System uh, with uh, experience in Habersham, Gainesville, and Hull County school systems. Um, started as a Spanish teacher, but has done uh, very important work with fatherhood training and parent liaison for our. Uh, Hispanic communities and underserved communities. Uh, she also serves on a ton of nonprofit uh, volunteer boards within our uh, community. She started in Gainesville College, then uh, went to Bernal and uh, UGA for a mediation certification and uh, Capella University, her latest uh, endeavor. So uh, I'll jump to Vanessa Sarasua, who uh, also have the privilege of working with and her board She's the founder and CEO of the Hispanic Alliance. She's a social worker by background from Miss Forty University. And um, she has worked in the whole county school systems as well with um, migrant families and helping those children of the migrant families with uh, Latino children and defects and also with the juvenile courts for home evaluations. So, uh, as you can see, their the reach within the community is significant. They understand, they have their fingers on the pulse of the issues 
Northeast Georgia is required to do like all, uh, many, all uh, nonprofit health systems, uh, what is called a community health needs assessment. And as far as I can remember, every year, and by the way, I, Christy Moore, I, I saw her name as a participant, she leads those efforts. This is real work that takes place. This is not just checking the boxes to ensure that the IRS receives the form. Yes, we did at CHNA, but actually this is in-depth work with a community Many of you have been involved in this process. And without any doubt, every time mental health issues surface as a big priority for the, our communities. And as we will learn today, the special impact within the minority communities, in this case, the Latino community. So this is something that permeates the health of our community that affects it in a negative way and until we really, all of us as a community can pitch in, do our part to be able to help and solve for this, eliminate the stigmas, and the, the historical beliefs around mental health, we won't make a difference. So I, I'm extremely uh, proud that uh, Lana and the Foothills came up with this uh, uh, topic because it's of the utmost relevant. So without uh, further ado, I think the next slide and we'll leave it to, uh, I don't know, Lana, you're going to introduce Vanessa. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Rios. And, and please, Vanessa, talk to us about barriers to mental health care among Hispanic, Latino, Latinx communities. Thank you. Um, Slide in 2022, over 18% of the US population was estimated to be Latino, and 16% of those reported having a mental illness um, within the last um, past year. So we, we see that on a daily basis here at Hispanic Alliance of, of how um, that affects our Latino community. Um, there are some barriers to, to treatment, if we can go to the next slide. Um, the Latinx Hispanic people are more likely to seek help for a mental um, health disorder from a primary care provider than a mental health specialist. And that's actually one of those um, difficult things for our community to actually go see a mental health specialist. Um, we see the poor communication with health providers is, is often an issue. I think it's the, it's the slide um, that's right after the first one, sorry. What are some treatment issues? Um, poor communication with health uh, providers is often an issue. There's a shortage of bilingual or Spanish speaking mental health professionals. Bilingual parent, patients are evaluated differently when evaluated in English versus um, Spanish and Latinx Hispanic people are frequently undertreated um, compared to whites, to the white population. Poor communication with healthcare providers is often an issue. Um, there's, there's, okay, Hispanic uh, Latino uh, adolescents are um, using more antidepressants um, at half the rate of their white counterparts and use stimulants for ADD and ADHD at half of the rate of white children as well. Those are some of the barriers of treatment. We'll do the next slide. So some of the things that we'll be discussing today, um, the next one is, uh, what are some of the access to barriers? Inequity and discrimination. Um, 
disparities in access to treatment, as well as the quality of the treatment that our Latino community receives. The next one would be um, stigma, um, that it is a taboo subject, um, the fear of uh, being labeled local or crazy, um, limited knowledge as no one talks about um, mental illness because it is an uncomfortable topic. The privacy concerns for our Latino community of um, airing dirty laundry in public um, or sharing some of those things with a mental health provider for them might be perceived as that. Um, from this frame of mind, it's, it's easy to see somehow somebody struggling with an emotional issue um, would feel maybe shame associated with it or afraid to, um, to talk about them. The next slide. Um, cultural competence. Healthcare providers are often not trained or aware of mental health issues in Hispanic Latino uh, ex communities. They also face the risk of misdiagnosing a patient um, because of the reported symptoms, um, since culture plays a part in symptom uh, presentation. The health insurance and documentation um, and status are all issues for our Latino community. 18% of Latino ex um, people in the US do not have health insurance. Usually um, our Latino community is the one working very hard without access to um, insurance or, um, you know, or underinsured. The lack of immigration status and the fear of deportation is also one of those that, um, makes our community uh, fearful in seeking mental health services and the lack of a proper identification. And sometimes our community might have been here many years, but um, going to Atlanta might be a little difficult or going to see um, the consulate and, and getting an ID is, is difficult at times for our community. Faith and spirituality also plays an important role in um, and in, in the access uh, or lack of access for our community. Um, lapses in, in faith, not praying, demonic forces are often blamed for mental health conditions. Uh, the sins of the parents as causes for mental and emotional distress are also those things that, um, that might keep our families from seeking mental health um, services and help. In turn, um, participants also reported coping with mental health issues by using their faith in God and prayer as protections instead of actually um, going to seek assistance um, by, by providers um, or also um, instead of, of you know, doing what, what they're told and, and, and using more of their faith instead of um, those services. While faith can be a powerful force, Hispanic, uh, Latino, X social norms and perceptions about mental illness are, are factors that make mental health issues um, in these communities a little more difficult. Poverty is a big issue and educational attainment is also a big issue for um, access to mental health services for our Latinos and 
people below the poverty line are more um, likely than more than twice as likely to report experiencing mental health problems compared to those living well above the poverty line, um, possibly due to all of the stressors associated with um, living in poverty and um, and and the stressors of not having a job or having a very stressful job in our area. It's, it's very stressful jobs. Um, in the U.S., 17% of his, Hispanic Latino ex people live in poverty compared to 8.2 non-Hispanic whites. So appropriate resources, access to resources and appropriate language is very important and messaging is lacking at times, but necessary. Um, taking into account all barriers, messaging in outreach and education can address those fears and disconnection that our community sometimes feels. The messaging is important and in the language is also very important. So what can healthcare providers do to help our community? Um, one of those important things is look at our, the patients in the eyes um, when they come into your practice, um, ask short questions and communicate short messages for effective interpretation. Um, ensure mental health checks are part of the routine preventive care, provide and promote services in Spanish and English, recruit staff who are Hispanic, Latino um, and bilingual, Understand the role of fam familismo and storytelling in Hispanic patients. Engage in cultural competency training and develop a cultural for formulation of patient, which addresses the acculturation, the history, the, communi the community, and also the family connection and immigration status. Also education, because at times the, the even just um, the communication is above their um, education level and they might not understand part of, of those, um, part of what their, even their diagnosis is. Understand the strength of Hispanic Latino families um, and understand the effects of migration and generational trauma, poverty and discrimination on, on the mental health um, for our communities, especially migration. We've seen a lot of that and, um, and just the trauma associated with uh, crossing the, the border, for example being aware of those situations. All right, thank you, Vanessa. Um, and please, all of you, as you are listening, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to, to post them in the chat um, as you think of them, and we will address them at the end. Um, so now I'd like to hand it over to Dr. Bruner uh, to discuss strategies to overcome language barriers to diagnosis and treatment. So Dr. Brenner, please take it away. Thank you so much, Lana. Um, it's good to be with everyone today. As the, as the slide states, 45.1% uh, of primary Spanish speakers in Georgia report limited English proficiency. And so let me, let me explain what that is. These are folks who have said that they um, speak English either not at all well or not well, as opposed to very well, okay? So as a healthcare provider, and I'm the only um, non-Latino presenter today, so maybe it's appropriate as an Anglo that I'm presenting this section, um, but this is something that I struggle with because I want to make sure that I am communicating um, what I, uh, my thoughts and feelings to the person in an appropriate way, and that is also received by them. 
And so um, we know as mental health clinicians how important communication is. And when there's a barrier, it just makes everything so difficult. It's not insurmountable, but it does make it more difficult. So I think I have control over our slides. If not, yes. Okay, hold on. Let me make sure I'm doing the right, pushing the right buttons. There we go. Um, depending on where you get your data, um, there are nearly 100 Spanish dialects spoken by members of the uh, Latino population. And um, this does not include Portuguese and other language spoken, languages spoken in Latin America. Um, so does, if I could have a rate uh, by a show of hands, who speaks all 100 of the Spanish dialects that are spoken in Georgia? Wait a minute, Lana, do you see, does everybody have their, does anybody have their hand raised other than me? I don't see, I don't um, we can, so. yeah. I don't, I don't think so either. So go back to that last slide just for a second. So language matters, and I'm looking at my notes page. So if you see me glancing off the screen, there's a reason. Um, but we have um, three different sections where we have the majority of our folks coming from, um, from uh, Latino, uh, Hispanic Latino uh, areas. So Central America, which we know includes uh, Mexico, Guatemala, and El Salvador, South America, primarily Colombia and Brazil, right? which also includes um, our, our Portuguese speaking folks. And, um, and then, uh, let's see, let's see, Central South, uh, what did I leave out? Um, oh, sorry, that includes Mexico. So the Migration Policy Institute says there are 14,882 Brazilian immigrants in Georgia as of 2021. So I don't know, I know we have a deficit in the number of Spanish uh, bilingual, Spanish and English providers. I don't know of any Portuguese speaking uh, bilingual Portuguese and English providers, okay? So uh, again, this is a, showing you what some of the things are that we're dealing with. So how a term is interpreted and how it is communicated to someone makes a huge difference. For example, uh, the term nervios in Spanish roughly translates to nervous state in English. Um, however, according to the DSM-5, now TR, text revision, it can also refer to, and here's a quote, headaches, occipital neck tension, irritability, gastrointestinal disturbances, sleep difficulties, nervousness, easy tearfulness, inability to concentrate, trembling, tingling, sensations, and Marios, which translates as dizziness with occasional vertigo-like exacerbations, all, all included in that one little word, nervios, okay? One seven-little word. So nervios is considered a cultural concept of distress as, a, as explained in the DSM. Um, and a related term is ataque, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm not pronouncing this, ataque de nervios, am I getting, am I anywhere close, guys? Yeah, okay, I'm getting some thumbs up, thank you, thank you. Uh, which is a syndrome found in Latinx cultural uh, concepts, and that includes anxiety, anger, or grief, screaming and shouting uncontrollably, heat in the chest, which rises up into the head and becoming verbally and physically aggressive, okay? Uh, it can also include some dissociative experiences that often come around because someone has found out that a family member has been either hurt or killed or is in some grave danger. So ataque de nervios. Um, so another example of how language matters, uh, 
how pain is thought of and communicated can make a big difference. Um, what you're taught when you're going through any sort of training program is to get a rating on the on the amount or the number of pain that someone says, right? You get that subjective rating. rating. I'm not a medical provider, but I've been to the doctor and they say, what's your pain, what's your pain rating today? One to 10. And so you give them the number. Well, um, what if you were taught that you're not supposed to express uh, pain or you're not supposed to think about pain or not supposed to tell, uh, express pain in the same way that the person is thinking about? Um, the same is true for our mental health clinicians. When we talk about something, is pain communicated and understood the same way depending on where we are sitting? How the person responds gives me an indication of how they are experiencing pain, whether it's physical or emotional. And if I understand it differently than what they're understanding, then we have a problem. And finally, colloquialisms or, idiosync or idiosyncrasies in language make a big difference. Um, the presenters, we the three presenters met uh, last week to go over our sections, and the phrase came up, they are just different. Now, I'm not going to try to say that in Spanish, but that was the that was the sentiment that was made. They are just different. Um, this is a common catch-all phrase in Spanish, which refers to anything out of the norm, okay? Um, while there's no word for quirky in Spanish, that I think would also be included in just different, but also included could be anyone who is highly anxious or depressed or experiencing a range of mental health symptoms. So if I didn't know that and I was talking with someone working with an interpreter and they said, oh, you know, she's just different. I'm not going to be I'm not going to clue in to delve deeper and ask those those other questions. OK, so again, this is importance of why why language matters. OK, let's see. Let me get to the next slide. OK, so uh, Vanessa did a great job of, of talking about education barriers, but let me just add one other piece. 81.2% uh, of Mexican-Americans and 74.6% of Central American immigrants have a high school degree or less. So why does that matter? Well, in, in the way in which we explain a disease, as Vanessa mentioned, makes a lot of difference. And how it is understood, there's, there's a little bit of silver lining. What we're seeing is the number of Mexican immigrants with high school degrees has actually doubled from 1980, and it's showing that it continues to rise. It was 11.4% in 1980, it's now 25.2. Uh, that's data's uh, 2016 is uh, where that data comes from. So we're seeing a rise, which makes a difference in how clinicians, whether physical or mental health, can communicate and, and get the information to the person in a way that they uh, is appropriate, they can understand. Um, as the quote from the uh, National Center for Biotechnology Information says, knowledge and beliefs about mental disorders which aid their recognition, management, or prevention, that mental health literacy is so, so important. Because if I, if I don't know that what I'm experiencing is a mental health issue, then I'm not going to know how to ask for it. I'm not going to know to ask for help. So helping and, and explaining that there is a problem and that there are ways of getting support for said problem makes a big difference. So, um, sorry, I'm jumping back between screens. There we go. 
So what is our solution when it comes to language? And uh, one of the things that we often refer to are our medical interpreters. And there are different types of uh, interpreters or interpretation, I should say, consecutive or simultaneous. Now, consecutive interpretation is the turn-taking model. I speak, then I stop, the interpreter trans, uh, interprets, says the piece, then they listen, then they come back, and they give it to me. Very, uh, very long-winded, takes a lot of time, but it's very important for accuracy. You're going to make sure that you get 200 milligrams of said, you know, drug is communicated. You've got to take that one pill every day, and then, you know, you make absolutely sure that the information is getting there. And it is ideal for shorter questions or answers and explanations, um, but it is limited by how much information the interpreter can hold and then communicate to the person before they have to stop the speaker, whether it's me as the clinician or the patient and provide that. But it is the default for all medical providers is this um, simul I'm sorry, consecutive interpretation as opposed to or compared to simultaneous interpretation, which happens in real time with no pauses, okay? So I'm speaking, and while I'm speaking, the interpreter is, is sitting beside me or sitting in between us and is speaking in the language of the, of the uh, patient. And then when I'm done, they then talk and uh, provide it to me. Uh, this is typically better in mental health settings. It allows for longer responses without inter interruption, uh, particularly important when someone is conveying something that has a lot of emotional uh, charge to it, something that they need to get out. And sometimes it's very difficult for our patients, our clients to get out their information. So we don't want to we don't interrupt that. Um, the unfortunate part is medical interpreters are not always trained in this model. The default is consecutive interpretation. So, so sometimes when we come to a mental health setting, we're not getting the kind of interpretation that's really, uh, really helpful. But whatever kind we get, it is very important. Uh, I'll speak to the, the in-person versus remote in just a second, but it's very important to have a well-trained interpreter and to have a conversation with them ahead of time to ensure that they are interpreting their words correctly. Um, so my, my example for this, back in the day, I was doing in-home um, therapy. And so I was asked to go speak to a Hmong, H-M-O-M-G, Hmong family, uh, speaking family. The dad had disciplined a child by uh, using um, something other than a hand to give a spank uh, and a left of mark. And so defects was called. I was asked to go in and kind of work with them and do some parent skills training and help them understand. So I went in and did, did my piece and I explained and said along, okay, here's why this is important. Let's give you some alternate ways. And um, then I said, does he understand? And then the interpreter turned to the man and he gave this long-winded answer and he said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-
in-person versus remote interpretation, it is a cost uh, saver to be using remote interpreters. I, everybody has a bottom line that they have to deal with. Everybody has, you know, budgets they have to meet. And remote interpretation is often used. The problem is when we're using remote interpreters, we often do not have this kind of relationship that we know that they are interpreting what we are doing, as opposed to an in-house interpreter or someone who is in person, where we likely have developed a, a, a close relationship or at least a working relationship with that person. So again, there's pros and cons, cost saving versus the in-depth relationship with the with between providers. Okay. Um, another type of solution, excuse me, get to the next slide. There we go. Um, is using or yep, using tools and assessments that are uh, already translated and normed on the population for which we are working with. For instance, uh, the Beck Anxiety Inventory, the MMPI, the uh, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality in uh, uh, Inventory, third edition, and then the ABAS, which is the Adaptive Behavior Assessment System, also third edition. Um, they're all translated. Uh oh, let's see. Um, I think we need to get, there we are. Um, the, they're all, they've all been translated and, and have been used in, uh, and in and with Spanish speaking uh, populations. However, none of these have been translated into, uh, actually maybe the MMPIs have translated into Portuguese, but the other ones have not. They all require a certain degree of education. For instance, the MMPI 3 must have a 4.5 grade level reading ability. The BAI, the BEC is uh, 8.3 and then the ABAS is at least a sixth grade reading level. So, uh, and that is in the language that you're, you know, of course, that they're reading. The stats say that um, those, those reading levels may actually be higher for Spanish, Spanish reading, Spanish speaking uh, clients. And so there's not any hard data that I was able to found, find. Um, in fact, I had some difficulty finding medical, meaning non-psychological tools that have been translated into Spanish. For instance, the Vanderbilt assessment scales, those are the ones that uh, pediatricians often use when diagnosing attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so those, I uh, could not find them translated into Spanish. So that's that's a, could be a limitation. So what do you do? If you have a client, a patient who is completing a measure on behalf of a child or an adult who's completing it for themselves, uh, a self-report that does not have a required reading level, well, you can still administer the tool and modify the language, but you have to acknowledge that as a limitation of the tool that you are using. It is, um, it is essential to say this is uh, an un, uh, a non-standard administration of whatever the tool is, and therefore the results may be skewed in some way. That's, that's it. It's not to say that you can't use it, but you should use it with caution and make sure that you're explaining that and whoever is, is coming across the, uh, the data later on. Okay. Um, I'll have some answers. Uh, uh, well, our question and answer time. And thank you to the person in the chat room that was helping me out. The Caribbean was the other area. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but yes, I knew I was not, uh, I knew I'd missed out on somebody. So thank you for that. Okay. And I think that brings me to the end of my, my section. Thank you so much, Dr. Bruner.
All right. So um, at this point, we will uh, let Betsy Escamilla talk to us about cultural competence and Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx patients. Take it away, Betsy. Great. Um, thank you for that great introduction. Um, so this is the part of the presentation where we want you to look at at yourself and do some introspection of your own. It is important that um, patients and, I'm sorry, providers understand what cultural awareness is and what is intercultural awareness. Slide, please. Okay. Um, I'm not going to read the slide word for word because you can do that, but pretty much cultural awareness means what is your own cultural identity? Do you know what your own cultural identity is? And then intercultural is the ability to function effectively across cultures. Do you know what other cultures, um, do you feel comfortable working around other cultures? Do you know, are you familiar with the cultures of the patients that you work with or the clients that you work with? Um, are you willing to be open to learning? I if you're in this presentation, you definitely are. So your intercultural um, desire and awareness is it's already there. But it is important that we bring this up because sometimes we go on our daily, um, you know, our do our daily jobs and forget uh, because we don't necessarily see the same cultural group all the time. Um, or if you do serve the same cultural group, then you you or your own personal bias may interfere. Um, I'm sorry may interject or even include some of your own personal biases or those biases from working with just a specific community. So these are some questions that I that we post that you know it'd be important for you to ask is do you feel like to ask yourself or even ask your patients or or clients do you feel heard or do you feel like you hear your patients do you feel uh, as a provider you understand and your patients concerns um, as a provider, do you communicate effectively? And I know that Dr. Bruner and Vanessa talked about the different ways of communication and how important it is between interpreting and, um, and translating and the difference between that. So those are, again, those are questions for you to even in the middle of this, of not necessarily a session, but a um, an appointment to ask if maybe you are going too fast or are you communicating effectively with the um with your patients. As a provider, are you willing to integrate your patients' beliefs, practices, identity, and cultural background into their their own treatment plans? Um, and do you feel as a, as a provider, you understand and can relate in some way to the cultural group that you serve? Slide. And why is background knowledge of culture important? I think that um, both, both of our previous presenters heavily or extremely um, shared some of the importance of why it is important. But as a Hispanic, um, Latino or Latinx culture, race and identity may influence their mental health and the best way to treat and support or refer them. For example, I wanna make a, an example of our, um, our population in Hall County and especially in Gainesville has increased tremendously in the last five years, especially with the new population of um, newcomers, what we would call in the, in the school system as newcomers or those um, adolescents coming in from Guatemala and even living in the living by themselves or traveling, taking a month or, or even weeks to get to their destination. And many of them do not even live with their own guardian or their own or their parents. Um, and how is that important when you are when you're when they're going in for just a physical so they can come to school or just a regular cold? Um, perhaps 
they're not, they're just answering, they've already, they may have already experienced some trauma through the whole journey. Are they going to, do they feel open or do you think that you're uh, the place or your doctor's office or your, um, if you're a mental health provider, do you provide a space where that feels, where they feel welcome with not just the, not just you as a person or your staff, but the environment um, that they're in, in your waiting area or do, are there flyers that represent that community, that specific community, or there, um, is there information in Spanish? And I know, or even the different, are there pictures, even without words that may make them feel comfortable? And it's important that not knowing a person's culture, history, beliefs, and intergenerational trauma, and that's what I was explaining as, can be, can lead to a misdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, discrimination, and ultimately ineffective and misguided treatment, meaning that there, um, whether it be mental health or a physical concern, if you're not treating, if you're not taking everything into consideration, especially their culture, then you are not going to be able, to, there could be a misdiagnosis. Slide. Okay. So there's a great diversity within us. In community, there are some shared cultural factors. There's a con connection of religious affiliations, and Vanessa talked about that. Strong family bonds, connections to extended work networks, and resilient approach to life and work. When I was saying earlier the example of people or the newcomers living with maybe not even their guardians or their or their own family member, the importance of allowing, I'm not asking you to break HIPAA or FERPA rules, but allowing, asking for their, their allowing for them to come into um, maybe even a session or a, the appointment with somebody that they feel comfortable with, um, a family member. Even if you have, you provide your own interpreter is allowing an understanding that it's okay for someone else to come in the room with them. Um, for some, their indigenous roots are a source of pride. So walking in with their their whole, especially the, the um we have a large number of indigenous newcomers into our area. And if they are walking in with their full um, indigenous clothing, that is a, a form of pride. So just recognizing that report of saying, what a beautiful skirt, what a beautiful, um, it's again, what we would call small talk. To them, it's very prideful if they are dressed up with their indigenous wear, it, they're doing that because they wanna show respect and um, and they're very proud of that. Another common value in our community is familismo. Again, I mentioned about allowing somebody else to come in um, in, the, in that family. Now, if it is a teenager, the opposite is if there is a second, third generation family, Sometimes that teenager is not okay with that family member being in the room and then allowing that that adolescence the ability to say to to respond if that if they want that person in there or not and understanding that there are intergenerational um and intercultural families within a family and I hope that you can understand what I'm trying to tell you with just because they may be all living in the same household doesn't mean that they all have the same customs and beliefs um, within their own family or just where they live. Slide, please. And then lack of knowledge, again, I've, I've already emphasized a lot. And then unable to recognize apparent incipient signs of mental illness and Dr. Bruner, well, I'm not gonna go ahead and repeat what he said talked about the different examples, but 
what are some cultural barriers that you have identified and even being okay with sharing that you've learned from your own um, patients and then examples there um, within the Hispanic community providing other examples without names I understand that but um, because the, that way they could feel that they, it's it's no longer a stigma that it's that it is common um, again use compassionate and collaborative approach to engage individuals in treatment planning by incorporating education whether it be education written education language I mean sorry written or just pictures that relay that may relay just compassion bond kindness a heart is the a, a heart we all know what a what a heart displays it could it its affection is can display compassion um the the general nonverbal languages being looking at the person when the, when you're speaking to them that is a huge that's also very very important but even with some indigenous groups understanding that they may not they'll they'll look at you when you're asking them a question but when you're talking to them they may not look straight at you because it is disrespectful for some indigenous groups to do that because you are seen as a level of a leader in um with that hierarchy and understanding that it's okay if they don't they are not necessarily looking back at you when you're speaking to them and vice versa. Um, what else? Maybe? Okay, slide. Next slide. The immigration status, it's really, really important when it comes to the intergenerational family groups, because within one family, you could have family members that are undocumented, meaning in another common word that you, you may hear more often that I personally don't like to use is legal status or illegal status. Um, changing those small words, like making a change in, in your vocabulary when you're using that, because the legal or the word legal, regardless of your political beliefs, attaches a criminal connotation to it versus undocumented it's talking about the lead, the immigration status not necessarily not necessarily the criminal act um, of living in the United States illegally or undocumentedly so changing being mindful of your own biases and your own um the wording that you use and I'll be honest with you there's sometimes that being a Latina I forget my own so just um Remembering that there are different statuses. DACA, what does that mean? Uh, how long has that student, they're, they're, they're teenagers or even adults now, they're over 30 years old, they're still under a DACA status, meaning they do not hold an immigration status, which that also can lead to an example in the, in the medical community could be if that person has um, a long-term illness, what are the, what are some in the hospital, what are some medical reasons that they cannot, they may not be able to receive Medicaid or um, treatment that usually is not, that is a costly um, treatment or even hospitalization? Does that, does immigration impact, can, can that impact their um, hospitalization or their treatment? Fear of deportation in whether it be Years ago in Hall County, there were there were a large number of deportations where we had school closing. We had a Jones Elementary School and multiple schools that 
he did some redistricting in Hall County because of the large deportation. Those community, a lot of people were hiding and they still live in our community. Those people still live in our community or they're let, they left, but then came back. And that can also impact them seeking help when they need medical treatment because they were afraid um, that going to the hospital, seeing a doctor, going to get mental health um, treatment can somehow lead to immigration. Um, level of culturation, again, saying what is okay within, whether it be the grandparent, the, the parent, the aunt, the uncle, understanding what each person's level of culturation is. It, how long have they lived in Gainesville? How long have they lived in Hall County? How long have they lived in the United States? How long ago did their immigration status change? Um, so being mindful of that, and again, you may not be able to ask all those questions in one in one appointment, but understanding that there may be intergenerational trauma there, and then their own cultural identity is important to understanding what is their own cultural identity within their own understanding of what acculturation is. Slide. Um, again, this is not a conversation to have publicly about challenges at home or in their lives. Um, we talked, we gave that example earlier about dirty laundry is washed at home. Um, I just wrote it in Spanish in case you guys want to remember that. And then craziness, there, there are different levels of craziness, especially or what people identified in the Latino community or Hispanic community as locos, um, whether it be a nervous or just simply a... What does it mean by being local? Is it a temporary local status or is it a permanent local status? Or um, is, it a, is there a medical diagnosis that needs to happen? Next, please. And then cultural humility goes back to the initial conversation, the initial things that I would mention about use compassionate and collect a collaborative approach to engage Latinos and Hispanics into treatment, having them being part of their own treatment plan, asking them, what are your beliefs? What do you, what do you know about um, whether it be a mental health concern or illness or even physical? Like, what are you, what are some things that you use culturally that, um, because maybe even when you're prescribing for physical illness or medical illness, if they're taking something else that is not that it's impact can be impacting their prescription. It's important for you to know that, and then incorporating again that education, symptom monitoring, and engagement with community resources can be a great way to support our community. Has changed in the last five to ten years, and it continues to change. Another, in the understanding that there are different clusters within our own community of Latinos, there is there is a. Um, in the center of Gainesville, there is a large Guatemalan community, but there's also a large Guatemalan community in the south end of the county. And what services, what providers are they seeking? Are they coming to the Northeast Georgia Medical Center or are they going to the south end and going to the health department? Um, you know, the different, their different services are where we do have a limited mental health resources in our community. Um, but what is closer to them, especially if they don't have transportation. If you are going to be referring them somewhere, think about the location. I know as a provider, sometimes that's not, you You wouldn't think that's your job, but if you're 
provide, if you're making a referral that is in Atlanta, but they don't drive, how is that? Are they going to be able to seek that treatment? Are they going to be able to see the, see those providers? Um, and then just additional, again, asking questions and getting to know the population that you serve. Next. And that leads me to the end. All right, thank you so much, Betsy. All right, at this time, we would like to encourage all participants watching live on June 23rd, 2023, to ask questions using the chat function in Zoom. So to ask a question, please click the chat icon that looks like a speech bubble and type into the dialog box that opens to the right. You'll click the send icon that looks like a paper plane in the bottom right of the dialog box to submit your questions. Um, so we're gonna wait just a moment uh, and, and see what questions come up for uh, either Vanessa, Dr. Bruner, Betsy, or all three. And you're welcome to indicate in the chat box um, who your question's directed to, or um, if you just type it, we'll, we'll let the speakers choose um, who will answer. So while we're waiting to see if any questions come through, um, I actually have a question. Uh, one of the things that Vanessa mentioned was uh, that this community is likely to seek mental health um, treatment or uh, to at least reveal a, a need to their primary care provider rather than to seek a mental health professional. And I just wanted to ask all three speakers. Um, how y'all think that uh, should influence a primary care provider's practice when they, they happen to be seeing um, a patient from this community. I think it's a great opportunity to have that um, initial, you know, doctor that has that opportunity to, to speak to the, uh, to that, to that person actually, um, you know, kind of get to, to what that, patient is saying and also be able to um, educate a little bit about mental health as well and put that you know patient at ease as well as then refer um, to someone that's trusted for that doctor so that so that patient is is going you know to where they need to go and explain a little bit of, of you know that that is something you know quite normal for them to feel maybe or if that stress or anxiety that they're feeling is quite normal and this is you know what what the next steps might be for that and guide them a little bit i think that would would help that patient a lot it's a trusted source for that for that person going um that's why they're opening up and telling them a little bit about what they're feeling thanks vanessa all right, we have another question. Um, what do you do if you do need to refer someone for a diagnosis that um, you don't work with or treat, such as schizophrenia? I'll take that one, I think. Um, so schizophrenia is difficult, can be difficult to diagnose. Um, I think a lot of our 
clients will have psychotic symptoms. And so you add at, at some point anxiety, depression, and other some other um, uh, disorders can lead to um, psychotic symptoms. Um, add a language barrier to that, and then you're in a real pickle. So I would want to have someone like maybe a psychiatrist or a psychologist who has good awareness, preferably a bilingual psychiatrist or psychologist who can work with that person to diagnose and then figure out what's the best course of treatment. Um, I think also someone who is culturally competent as we've been going over that has an awareness of how sometimes what looks like a psychotic symptom to us may be an expression of their uh, religious or spiritual beliefs uh, and may not in you know some people who say well i'm seeing i'm seeing dead people i'm seeing whatever well that that may be a psychotic symptom it could be an expression of grief or something that is very normal within their faith community so um someone who can really take the time to to look into the particulars of what's going on with that person i think is important thank you dr bruner and that leads me to a question maybe for um vanessa or and or betsy um, are there, uh, does this community have a pool of resources, um, or lists of providers that do have the skills that, um, Dr. Bruner is referencing? Um, so does that community have access to that and do providers, the, the people that we're kind of speaking to, are there resources, um, that they can access to kind of know who might have those skills? Betsy? <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and take I that. I would say no. I mean, I have a couple of, of uh, places where we referred to um, to some mental health support, but they're part-time. Uh, maybe they speak um, the language, but might be from another country and not understand, um, you know, the Guatemalan or Mexican community and their hardships coming over here. Um, so, I mean, it's it, even when you do have a bilingual um you know, a provider, I think sometimes that person might not completely understand the whole going through the jungle in Mexico to get here um, of some immigrants that that are arriving. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't think we have uh, in the whole state, um, the, the resources we need to address the Latino mental health um, supports that we need to have. But um, but I, I see some progress. I think we're working on it. But uh, but I would say that I don't I don't I would I wouldn't know where to even begin to send someone um, for that diagnosis. Um, so there's actually a place in Winnipeg called SEPTA that is culturally and it's a Latino-based mental health. It's it is private and it's also they also receive department behavioral um, department of behavior funds. Uh, However, it is in Winnet, it's off of Jimmy Carter. So again, transportation before you refer them, it that is something that it's important to ask. Um, and then the age, it's important to, to know. Now, going back to the list of resources locally, I can tell you that there are only three licensed counselors, professional counselors, or um, and I believe one social worker that does therapy that is bilingual within our hall. Gainesville community, um, but there are some more in the Johns Creek and Forsyth area. Um, I mean, that's not a lot of people. And most of those that I know, those three that I know of are booked. 
So um, as providers and as people in our community, it's important that when you are in those meetings of either hiring or looking outside of our community is that you, you bring, that you're aware of that to try to recruit and maybe even, I'm not saying be biased in your hiring process, but understanding that there is a need in our community for mental health providers. There are, there are, um, that are not only speak Spanish, but understand. And just because they may be Latino doesn't mean they understand because they're, they may not have the experience of working within the, the um, intercultural community and in, in just the local community here. Yes, and I, I just want to add something to that. I made, the, I made the mistake of assuming that because a student was Latina, that she would be able to provide even as much as I know, provide uh, therapy in Spanish. And she said she was not comfortable with that at all. And so I needed, I had to step back, that's that kind of cultural confidence piece and step back and go, okay, wait a minute, I need to then check my own assumptions and uh, figure out who, who would be then an appropriate referral uh, for, this, for this particular client, this patient. Thank you so much. All right, we have another question. Um, what sorts of cultural stigma, if any, do you see around postpartum mental health concerns? And what are some approaches that could help reconcile that? I think that was probably for me. I don't know, Vanessa, you might, do you have any response? Well, I've, I've seen uh, mommies who, who get here and they're pregnant and um, they get here from, you know, from, from the border and they have to deal with a lot of different things. I mean, I think that the one of the things we didn't talk about too much or um, maybe at all is really just the lack of sense of belonging and how that takes a long time for our immigrant community to feel, um, maybe even years. Um, so it's, it's kind of difficult for, um, you know, to just kind of connect to other resources and to connect to, to resources just to survive. I mean, the food and the diapers and the formula and resources that might be able to help them once the baby arrives and then have to deal with, um, I've, I've seen mommies that are just homeless expecting a baby and, um, and trying to um, navigate, you know, the whole system of trying to find a job. So it's not just, oh, I had a baby, everything else is fine and, and I'm feeling sad. It's also just a lot of other stressors when it comes to, to immigrant moms and um, the things that they have to worry about, N not to even mention the the lack of uh, prenatal care for immigrant women who don't have the residency, um, you know, uh, for for Medicaid. So they have to deal with a lot of things. I mean, some moms don't know what they're having until they actually go to the hospital to have their baby. Um, and so all those stresses to know if the baby's fine and not fine, and then finally having the baby and then having to worry a lot of other of other things. Um, for our immigrant community. So it's, um, but I, that's my only experience of, of what I what I see here, Dr. Bruner. That's great. Um, I am not aware of any uh, particular stigma around postpartum uh, or, you know, postpartum mental health concerns, but I'd be interested to, to know what um, Rima was wondering about. I'm, I'm, I'm really curious and there may be something out there that I'm not aware of. I would like to also add about the inner the the culturation levels because it it's important that the there is a high level of responsibility in motherhood in the Latino community 
or in Hispanic community where those expectations are even to some degrees at a higher percentage of you are, that's what you're meant to be, to be a mom and to have you, your own, the, the time when you become a mother, it is no longer about your own, about yourself. It's about giving it or um, raising that child. So even your own personal mental health in physical ailments may be something that they are not aware. So you as a provider can, are probably seeing can or are, may see some of the signs before that that person may be able to verbalize it or under, or know that it's happening. Um, and what is just you know if they are if they're if they have the support, do they have the community support, meaning their family support, or is someone at home helping with the child, or is it fully their own that that, that mother's responsibility to take care of the child from the minute that baby wakes up to the minute that baby goes to sleep, how, um, you know, what, it, what is the role of any other person in the family is, uh, in this case, the baby's dad in the home, are they, are they, what are each responsibilities of their own? Um, again, being mindful where it becomes a, a no longer, it is no longer, it's not only about the, um, you know, the mother is, it's now, it becomes, it is their response. It's the full, in many of the Latino community, it is the full responsibility of the mother to take care of the child. And not to mention that we see a lot of single moms in our community as well. There are a lot of single moms. Um, and, but also they might not recognize that they're actually, um, you know, suffering from postpartum depression or know about that in our community. That's something that we don't know about or don't speak about or just take as normal. And then we just, you know, normal motherhood. And we just, you know, carry that with us as, as, you know, as much as we can, as best we can. And how long can it last? Because I think also knowing again, educating our own, educating the community about how long can postpartum last. Yeah. Or what the signs are. Thank you so much. Um, another question, what can we do to decrease fears of deportation in the uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx community when they are victims of crime? And there's a bit of elaboration here. Um, Dr. Battle says this often keeps them from wanting to get law enforcement involved. Um, she works with child victims of sexual and other types of abuse um, and often well-intentioned patients fail to report to law enforcement that their child has been sexually abused due to fears related to their documentation status. Um, when we, uh, being herself and law enforcement, meet with the family, we are not at all concerned with their documentation status. So again, her question is, what can we do to decrease those fears? Talking about the elephant in the room, meaning straight up say it. Um, sometimes we we beat around the bush or maybe because we feel like if we're asking um, and maybe as a as a especially in Dr. Bernard, I'm going to pick on you for not only your race, but because we've had this conversation, but being even I'm not saying making a light statement of or making it a joke, but saying being allowing them to understand that you want, you know, that, you know, that that may be a fear, um, not telling them, I, I, you are fearing this, but just say it, mm -hmm. say it, 
We have nothing to do with immigration. Immigration, if we if there is a form in the form that there's a social security number listed, it is for the purpose of identifying the name with the number. Um, not it has nothing to do with immigration. I yes, I like that, and I think y'all tell me whether this makes any sense. Having it's almost like a safe space flyer or signal or something that says this is this this is a place that does not focus on document like st status of documentation or non-documentation would that make any difference if we had that like say in front of the clinic or front of the casa office or the um the little house i think that just the fact that social security numbers are required in so many places our community feels it is not for them and, and, and that in itself makes, um, you know, our community kind of auto exclude themselves from seeking help from many of the places that, that are, you know, that are created to help people, you know. Um, I think that as a community, we've improved a lot in the last six years and the, the ICE referrals are not um, as prevalent as we've seen in the past which helps our community feel a lot safer in the community that they've called for years home. Um, being the, the number one migrant community in the whole state, I think that that's a wonderful step that we've taken in, in securing peace um, for a lot of families. The newcomer or new arrival families though, however, might not feel or know that. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a, that's a wonderful idea, but I think um, as we've as we've tried to help other nonprofits understand that in the intake of of their services is everything is ever it's everything you know and and offering bilingual or at least a bilingual flyer is very welcoming for our community and making them feel that it is for them too that these services are for them too those things are are just essential to providing services for for the community a bilingual a flyer if you can't hire a bilingual staff at least make it welcoming or that people can see something that, that signals to them that it is for them as well and that they are welcome there i think those that's a very good place to start as well as and i know that language is an uncomfortable thing and at times People cannot even look at others in the eyes when they don't share the same language. But I think that that communication, nonverbal communication, which we also didn't kind of touch on a little bit, but we should have, is essential as well in, in relating to other human beings who are different from you. Mm -hmm. So if you just can look at someone as they're coming into your office or train your staff to do that so that those people feel that they are welcome and we're in that space, those are just important little things you can start doing today to make people that are different from, from you or have a different culture or understanding or, or going through different things that are difficult for them, feel a little more welcome and happy in, in your office, in your space. Um, you know, I, this community has done wonders in the last six years. I'm very, I'm very proud of the things that we've done to accommodate our migrant community here that works so hard, you know, in the poultry capital of the world, right? And, and makes them feel good. We have a lot of different, more, more things to do, a lot of different things to do to help them a little bit more, but, but that's, you know, it's just in the intake. Like, as soon as you say, do you have a social security number? They automatically think, that even if it's services for their children, that they're not going to be eligible, that it's not for them then. Um, and the part status families suffer a lot with that here. 
because the parents might not be, the grandpa might not be, but the children are. And, and if you really want to help that family, you're, you're going to have to realize that and, and try to adjust that in your intake and your intake and your processes and, and how you make people feel when they come in through your door. If it's not an essential thing for your organization to ask or your provider to ask, then don't ask. And if you have to ask, then just say, it's okay if you're, if you don't have this, but you know, what are your children's social security number then? Or who has a social security in your family that we could, you know, if you're able to make, make it a little more flexible like that. Thanks, Vanessa. All right, we have one last question um, for Betsy. That's about, I think, all we'll have time for. Um, are the, or well, maybe we can do these two. Are the providers in the schools, Betsy, better prepared to meet children's needs um, as opposed to, I think, uh, the adult community that we've been discussing? Um, and I think that question can, we can answer in different ways and also identify, first, we got to identify what are the needs. If it's a medical then it, we may, we don't have staff. If it's a mental health need, what even though our county and our city schools provide mental health providers, have mental health providers or mental health clinicians, what are the numbers? For example, I can give you Gainesville City's numbers. We have, we have, or I can give you Gainesville High Schools. We have one mental health clinician that has a caseload, or can have a caseload of 25 max students, our student population is 2,500. Our demographics population of Latino, Latinx, or Hispanic is 60%. So that you do the math. I'm not a great, math and I are not great friends, but um, we also are lacking in that. Now, are we, perhaps we're, we do have a little bit more of that experience in children as because we've seen, we, we see the changes happen a lot faster than, than those in your field, in the medical field um, do, because we we have a large, I mean, we have the sample size, right? We have the, um, we see them more often, we see them in, in groups so we can identify it. Um, but are we the ones able to provide? Unfortunately, we can't provide all the resources, nor are we all trained in that, um, in mental health to do that. Now in the schools in the school systems we do have school counselors in our schools but our role are, is to provide immediate um referrals and assessment and screening like you guys are um and then make a referral out to our community and that's where we collaboratively work with our school social workers and I can tell you that we are very we work very very closely and they are the ones in our community that also have those contacts um so if you as a provider and I've had doctors call me I've had psychiatrists call me I have um same thing with our social workers is building that relationship with our school, not just with the people that I, with the staff in the schools that provide that direct service, not necessarily or only, um, you know, the, the, the administration or the teachers, because they may not be aware of that. Um, so again, having that inner collaboration within our own groups, professional groups. Thank you so much, Betsy. Um, last quick question, are there efforts to work with religious leaders to educate them of resources and help that they can share with their church community? And I just want to say about the the religious aspect is that, um, you know, I think there, there has to be some steps taken in educating pastors about mental health. 
Um, because along the lines of, um, you know, faith being the, the reason that, you know, some people might not want to go to a mental health, mental health provider, um, that's sometimes um, accentuated by that visit to the pastor who says, you know, um, yes, like prayer is enough for you. Like, you know, and, and there might be a more serious um, thing to consider. But I also, um, as far as domestic violence and as far as things like that, I think that, um, you know, there's, there's just a lot of educating to do. And, and I'm hopeful that, um, that we can help educate some of those, the, those pastors because some, some of the, our community go, you know, goes to, to those pastors to, to find that support or that connection. Um, and in domestic violence, for example, I know women who are told to just stay with the abusive husband and it'll be all right. And it'll be, you know, through prayer, we can fix things. But, um, but that woman is still in that abusive relationship for, for many years because of that, or, um, you know, prayer can fix your, you know, your stress or your anxiety or your depression or, and I think that there has to be an understanding of, of mental health, um, for that, for that you know, community as well. Um, some people look at that as their safe haven um, for, you know, for, for that support and it's not there. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, and thank you, Dr. Bruner, um, in the chat uh, addressing what steps are being taken to address the issues that we pointed out today regarding lack of access and communication about mental health services and resources. Um, among healthcare providers and agencies in Northeast Georgia. So Dr. Bruner um, listed a couple of those efforts that are currently happening. And um, and I can tell you just from working with these three speakers that um, it seems like things are moving um, in a direction of, of more um, trying to develop more to address these needs. So um, thank you so much for all of those, those great um, and insightful questions. Uh, this concludes our webinar today. Thank you so much for participating and a very special thank you to our panelists, um, Vanessa, Dr. Brenner, and Betsy. We hope that you enjoyed their presentations and, and their responses to your questions. As a reminder, a recorded version of this webinar and related resources will be available at foothillsahec.org, um, which I will put in the chat please be sure to complete the survey evaluation for this webinar, um, especially if you'd like to earn CME or CEU credit. Um, it also helps us to improve future pro, uh, programming. And I will send a survey reminder along with those um, supporting resources sometime next week to all registrants. This concludes the webinar and thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful day.